I don't believe you. All right. Uh, nearly every entertainment journalist in the United States whose actual job is covering this beat reacted to the news of a Ticketmaster hearing by writing about how Pearl Jam already did it and everyone who's mad now should have been paying attention then. A, nearly any person who wants to see an artist capable of selling out a major stadium was not alive when the whole Pearl Jam versus Ticketmaster thing happened. So shut the fuck up if the only point you're bringing to the table is how old you are. And B, no, Pearl Jam did not already do this because they did not remotely understand basically anything about Ticketmaster when that whole fiasco went down. Real quick, I just like to say that uh, I am oftentimes not a fan of people that are just straight up media critics. I think it's pretty like shitty, normal, like a uh, lowest form of journalism in general. Uh, however, when somebody is actually talking about things that you know a decent amount about, it is extremely frustrating that people write articles but never actually did any. They make comments about things that just get really just get regurgitated over and over and over. And instead of taking five seconds to Google it or research what actually happened with Ticketmaster and Pearl Jam, just as an easy example, because we're going to talk about it, they just regurgitate it again. And it just makes them look like complete morons when anybody actually takes literally two minutes to read exactly what happened. And we'll get into the Pearl Jam thing later, but the current situation is radically different from the 90s. Another reason we felt this episode is necessary is that if the average person tuned into that Senate hearing to find out what went on with the Taylor Swift on sale, so many of the involved parties were speaking from prepared talking points rather than actually replying to what someone else had just said to them or asked them. So really everyone was just talking past each other. And if you are not already deeply familiar with the state of this industry, it's just impossible to follow what's actually happening. I mean, I had a hard time figuring out what the fuck these people thought they were saying. And I know what they're mm -hmm. talking about. So yeah, it's uh, it's weird. I mean, I, I watched the entire thing beginning to end and Literally, all I could think was the whole time was, I wish there was better people. Like, this yeah. is a conversation obviously worth having. Does Live Nation Ticketmaster have a monopoly power, too much power, blah, blah, blah. These are, this is a conversation worth having, and we should have it, and the government should have it, and revisit their allowing the merger to happen in 2010. Um, but that's not what happened. What happened, if you watch it, is just a bunch of people kind of spewing dis disorganized ideas. And I guess I, I don't watch a lot of Senate hearings. I guess this is probably what happens again all the time. I, I think it's a, annoying uh, on the same stances to criticize everything government does as being stupid. I don't believe that. But then you watch something like this as someone who is relatively knowledgeable on the topic. And it is difficult not to come to the conclusion that they're actually idiots. And these are the people <laughs> that make the laws. And that's really frustrating. And it doesn't help that the people that they chose to be on the panel were very bad representations of the business. It was some, it was all either people with a vested interest in distracting you and putting your attention in a different direction or people who were deeply and nerdily knowledgeable on a topic, but incapable of speaking in plain terms that anyone can understand. And then just, people who had no idea what they're talking about as far as the panel goes. I mean, and the senators, I think everyone by now knows that they're just saying what some millennial person on their staff told them to, yeah. to say or ask or whatever, you know, like half of them have no fucking clue. 
this is the way that I would genuinely describe the music business, particularly the live side of the music business, is that it is a giant hostage situation at all times. And anyone actively in the music business in that world literally has a gun pointed at them and they're pointing a gun at somebody else. And it's a constant game of gotcha, who has the bigger gun in every contest. So what happens in a Senate hearing where there's people on display that are actively still in the business, they have yeah. <laughs> some, they have something to lose yeah. by being really, really honest with what's happening because they're still actively in the business. So it's, it's a game of how honest do I really want to be? Because at the end of the day, I still have to, in some way, shape or form, do business with these people like SeatGeek CEO, I don't, or the SeatGeek representative there, uh, you know, at the end of the day, he's still, he may hate Ticketmaster or think that they have a monopoly or Live Nation, whatever. Uh, but at the end of the day, they make a shit ton of money on the shows that Live Nation puts on across the country because they resell tickets on their platform. So yeah, he's going to be honest, but like, does he really want to be super honest about his business model or jam concerts or whoever else was on the panel? Like watching a hostage negotiation where people don't really want to say exactly how they feel because they don't want to get shot. Really, we could have done like a mystery science theater type commentary on the actual hearing because there was a lot of stuff where it was more like what they weren't saying. Yeah. And there were a lot of times where like someone's facial expression was doing a lot of talking to someone sitting right next to them. Like, sure. are you sure you want to fucking say that? Because we can go down that road if you want to. It would have been five hours long. The, the hearing was two and a half and I yeah. probably spent five hours in my head writing notes <laughs> and just commenting on stuff in my head the whole time. Particularly the guy there from Ticketmaster, the legalese that he was speaking was just off the charts. He at one point said a bunch of bullshit like it's not Ticketmaster who decides how much a ticket's going to cost. It's not Ticketmaster who decides how many tickets Ticketmaster will be the one to sell. And it's not Ticketmaster who set the service fees. What he is technically saying there, and this is true, is that Ticketmaster is not the only entity responsible for determining those things. But they are certainly one of the entities involved in determining those prices. The way that he said it, it makes it seem like he's got both hands tied behind his back and no say in the matter. It's just like, dude, that's fucking not true at all. It means saying that Live Nation or I mean, Ticketmaster, there's the same company, but we'll just say Ticketmaster, yeah. uh, has no say in the fees. That's really crazy because I would love to see everyone who signed a Ticketmaster ticketing deal, I guess in their contract, it just doesn't explicitly lay out what the fees are. Because last time <laughs> I signed a ticketing deal, it explicitly laid out what the fee structure was going to be. Now, those were negotiable. I mean, maybe not mm -hmm. super, super negotiable for me because it was small. But like when you're a stadium, those are negotiating points. You can absolutely negotiate those things. To say that Ticketmaster has no say in what the fees are is not actually accurate at all. In my personal experience, I can tell you that is absolutely inaccurate. For one thing, because th these deals aren't public, so we can't tell you exactly what the contract says the fees are going to be on a case-by-case -case deal, but it is public information that part of Ticketmaster's business model now is being able to offer huge, enormous advances on money that venues will earn from selling tickets through Ticketmaster. They give them this, this money ahead of time. And... For Ticketmaster to simply say the service fees are not their fault ignores the fact that Ticketmaster already gave these people a shitload of money that they are going to be paid back through service fees. A significant percentage of those service fees going towards the venue have got to be toward recouping those advances. 
So I think we should just rewind just a little bit and talk about what happens when a venue goes out and wants to sign a ticketing deal. There's a handful of ticketing companies that exist in the world. Uh, Ticket Web is owned by Ticketmaster. Frontgate Tickets is owned by Ticketmaster. Now, and yeah. Ticketmaster just exists. Uh, and then there's, like currently there's C-Tickets, E-Ticks. Um, there's a handful of, of players. Is it AXS or Ticket ASS? Fly did exist. They're gone. Axis, which is owned by AEG. When a venue decides to sign a ticketing deal, usually the, one of the biggest negotiating points is a signing bonus. What's weird is that it even illegally is allowed to happen, but this is how it goes. You say, we have a 500 cap club. We expect to sell 100,000 tickets a year. We'll just throw out some numbers. Ticket company X goes, uh, cool, we'll give you a $50,000 signing bonus, meaning free money. You sign a three-year yeah, deal with us. That's just a bonus. That yeah. is just a bonus. We'll give you $50,000 for signing a deal with us. You go to company Y and they say, we'll give you $75,000 and you go down the line. And typically a venue goes, <laughs> whoever is going to give us the biggest signing bonus usually gets the business. The thing is, is money, nothing is free. So the bigger the signing bonus, the, the free money that they're, the free hard quotes here of money that they're giving you, they need to recoup that money. And they're going to recoup it the only way possible, which is through fees. So typically what would happen is the higher bonus that you got, the fee structure on every ticket that was sold would change. Then there's another aspect to it, which is advances, which means you can get asked the ticketing companies for $100,000. Again, just simple numbers. And then they will tack an extra dollar onto every ticket to recoup the $100,000. And then there's actual ticketing fee structures on every show, which can be manipulated this across is, the board. This is just between the venue and the ticketing agency, by yes. the way. We're going to try to cover this in a comprehensive way. As you will see, this situation is ridiculously complex, which is why there's no reasonable expectation that anyone should have of anyone who works in Washington, D.C. understanding this or being able to write policy to somehow correct this. I want you to talk about something else uh, that I think a lot of people don't understand, which is that a venue does not have to be owned by Live Nation in order for it to be almost entirely controlled by Live Nation as far as the acts that are going to be there. The biggest thing, a venue makes money selling beer in concessions. That's that's like 90% of what a venue makes money on is through concessions. So their goal is to have as many shows as possible on their calendars because every head in the door means they sell beer to that person, etc. So this is true for Live Nation, but also true for AEG and other promoters. Small regional promoters do the same thing. They make exclusivity deals with venues where they don't own the club. They don't lease the club. Their name is not on the club. It's a locally owned venue, but they own the calendar for the club. So they own the power, meaning they're in charge of booking the calendar. And typically what that comes with is exclusivity. So when... Live Nation goes to a club. They say, hey, we're going to guarantee you 100 shows a year and you don't have to do anything. You don't have to have an in-house promoter. You don't have to have an in-house show buyer because this is the hardest job, in my opinion, in the, oh, entire, absolutely. In the entire club. This is why cocaine exists. Right. Yeah. Is in charge of getting people in the door is very difficult. So you, this behemoth company comes along and says, hey, we'll do it for you. And, you know, we'll guarantee you X number of shows a year. It makes total sense for you to do that. <laughs> Where it gets tricky is that there is no obligation for the venue or Live Nation or AEG or whoever it is to share that information with the public. 
The only reason I know which clubs locally here in Nashville have exclusivity deals is because I used to work in the business and I still know people in the business. So I'm very aware of the structure. So right now, Mark is talking about venues that you think he couldn't possibly be talking about in your town. Not all of them, but I guarantee you a lot of you right now are sitting there thinking, well, surely that's not the case at this place that I love to go see concerts at. Sure. And a lot of you are wrong. It's especially in major markets. If you live in a, what they call like an A market or a B market, which would be like A markets or New York City, Chicago, LA, huge cities, B markets would probably be Nashville sized cities. When you get up into the uh, theater size uh, which I think is about 2,500 people, I believe, or 3,000. There's an actual breakdown in the Live Nation 10K that tells you exactly how they do it. But um, exclusivity, it, it's very rare. I think nowadays when I did it, it was more common, but there's been such a massive consolidation now that there's very few independent promoters left in the country, regardless of what you see listed on a flyer. Most of these companies are not actually independent. They're owned by Live Nation, or, typically. Or a controlling share. <laughs> or a controlling share. Like, and they own the calendars. It, it's weird. They, they've created, Live Nation is really good at this because they're the biggest. So they have so much power, way too much power, arguably. Brooklyn Bowl, for example. But they own a controlling stake in Brooklyn Bowl. Um, but they typically are acknowledged as the owners of Brooklyn Bowl. But they own the calendar for almost every other, quote unquote, competition venue in the market. Yep. And if they don't own the calendar for it, then at least in Nashville, most of the other clubs are run by AEG. And if it's not AEG, then maybe a, a few handful of clubs still have in-house buyers that buy shows. It's very difficult to compete with the behemoths at this point. When I did it, it was a lot of independence, at least in Nashville, there was a handful of independent companies. Now it is not. It is, and this is true, not just in Nashville. This is true across the country. There's a massive consolidation, but Live Nation has structured these deals so well Nobody knows actually what's happening behind the, behind the scenes. So they can kind of skirt the laws. You know what I mean? They can kind of skirt. They say, oh, well, we only own, we only control 10% of the market. Or I can't remember the exact number of what he said. It doesn't there. matter what the fuck he said. It's not true. <laughs> we, only, we only control, we only own 10% of the clubs. Yeah, yeah, that's true. You may only own 10% of the clubs, but you control probably 70% of the clubs in some markets, they control 100% of the clubs. They do. There are a handful of markets in this country where Live Nation is the yeah, only yeah. It's option. An, it's not like just, we need one in each city. Sometimes they own every venue in your city. Own every venue or they own the calendar. Right, at I every, mean, that's what I meant, the yeah, calendar. Yeah, yeah, they own an aspect of it. They own the control. So already we have brought up so much shit that should have been like one of the primary focal points of that hearing and didn't get brought up at all. Here are some more questions that I think it would be worth asking if there happened to be any industry uh, professionals paying attention, any entertainment journalists, any uh, millennial staffers who work for politicians in Washington, D.C. I think it would be worth asking in a venue that has an exclusive ticketing deal with Ticketmaster, what percentage of national concert tours on that venue's calendar are promoted by Live Nation? Mm. To look at it from the other angle, what percentage of stops on the biggest national concert tours promoted by Live Nation take place in venues signed to Ticketmaster? 
97% of Billboard's top 40 tours in the United States last year were sold through Ticketmaster, and 89% of every concert that took place in Billboard's top 25 stadiums last year were too. So what percentage of those events happened in those locations because the tour had been sold to Live Nation? Someone needs to be asking these questions. What percentage of stops on Live Nation's national concert tours don't take place in venues ticketed by Ticketmaster? Someone needs to be asking these questions. I think it would be helpful to know the answers in order to establish whether or not this is a monopoly. Everyone's focused on the Ticketmaster part of things because that's the public facing part of it, which is the entire strategy of the industry. I think that we should maybe perhaps be focused at least as much on the Live Nation part of it. Because that's where most of the fuckery is taking place. What's weird is it's such a, I, I still struggle with this. It's fucking Live Nation is the name of the company. But we got everyone by calling it Ticketmaster sucks. No, but they've done a good job at pretending like they are two separate entities, even though they're, they are Live Nation is Ticketmaster. But we still think of them as two separate things. But partially, I think that's by design because they've done such a great job at creating a whipping post yeah. and like a bad guy. Yeah, It's just like, Ticketmaster shows up to the negotiation table just being like, hit me, please. The gimps in the corner with fucking leather masks on, like, please whip us. And everyone's like, yeah, they're the fucking bad that's guys. Their job. That's literally their job. Their whole thing in life is to be the whipping post, the bad guy for everything the artist manager whoever decides to do to be greedy shitbags it's their brand you could take a thousand people sit them down to some kind of like ekg measuring device or whatever show them the live nation logo register their reaction show them the Ticketmaster logo register their reaction and i guarantee fucking tee you there's just rage as soon as people see the Ticketmaster. the music business the reason why it exists like this is that there's very little regulation the barrier to entry to join get in the music business is about zero. Like you can be a convicted felon and become a manager of a band or become a promoter. Like you can do all these things. Nobody's doing background checks on anybody, very rarely anyways, to figure out who you really are. The business is not regulated really hardly at all, if at all, in a majority, in really any meaningful not, way. Not in any meaningful Not way. in any meaningful way. So it's not been difficult at all for a really the only publicly traded, certainly the largest by a mile, publicly traded live music company being Live Nation and joining forces with Ticketmaster in 2010 to really consolidate the entire market really fucking quickly. And because there's no regulation, there's nothing that says you have to explicitly say that it's a Live Nation show or a Live Nation venue. There's no law that says that. You know what I mean? They're not breaking any laws technically by owning the calendar. They don't lease the, well, like, we don't own it, which is true. They don't, they don't own the club. They don't lease the club. They don't run the club. They just own the decisions. The most <laughs> valuable part of the club, which is the calendar. You're right. They don't own the bar, but they get a piece of the bar. Oftentimes yes. they don't own the part that makes the most money typically they can just kind of always skirt under the radar and say, well, we don't own that. So the part that everyone, the common person on the street who just wants to go to a fucking concert, the part that they are focused on and the part that this hearing was focused on is the service fees. So I think that we can start talking about the way that that was discussed in the hearing a little bit and then move into uh, sort of the history of ticket scalping, because that's kind of the whole conversation here. And I think that'll take us back around to the 
venue and promoter side of things. And at some point in there, we'll hit Pearl Jam. So the guy they had at the hearing who was in some band nobody's ever heard of made a statement to the effect of we, the artists, do not get one cent of the service fees, which very well may be true for him. I don't think that he was necessarily lying because he's a guy in a band that nobody's ever heard of. Anyone who has worked in ticketing at a higher level knows for a fact there are artists working at a much higher level than that dude. And those artists absolutely add extra money to the service fees for no other reason than to make more money from fans without appearing to make more money from their fans. That's a thing. Real fast, I did love it when Marsha Blackburn told that dude his band should come play in Nashville, and he was like, we were just there last week, you dusty old cunt. (laughs) The worst thing about this entire hearing was making me listen to some of these people talk. Well, I hated the fact that I was like agreeing with people who I actually despise. Like Josh Hawley saying some of the smartest shit in the hearing was deeply upsetting to me. Yes, I wanted to gag. This dude has literally... He is coming to the table in a band that is the size. He literally has a water gun, assault rifles, and he's got a pea shooter. Of course, he doesn't get a piece of any ticketing fees because he's a nobody. To be honest with you, at the club level, which is, say, well, 500 to 1,000 cap clubs, nobody's getting a piece of that stuff. Really, you yeah. you got to get to a point as an artist to where you're bringing a full-size weapon to a full-size weapon fight. Yeah. <laughs> where you're like, they're like, you show up to the meeting and you're like, I want X and you set down your, you know, rocket launcher and they're like, oh shit, he's got a rocket launcher, dude. We can't, we have to negotiate it. He's got a rocket launcher. This dude sits down and they're like, dude, we will literally kill you right here and throw your body out the window. (laughs) Like nobody cares. So yeah, of course, a vast majority of bands, probably 99% of bands don't ever see a portion of the ticketing fee. But once you reach a certain size, then that that conversation changes, at least if your management's worth a shit. But yeah, we could talk about how bad they are at another well, time. What's true and necessary to point out, too, is like when we say what major artists are and are not responsible for in this episode, we're almost always talking about an artist manager or an artist booking agent, which these are the people who actually know how the industry works and the people who actually iron out the details of the deal. Most millionaire artists are not getting deeply hands-on with the particulars of their tour contracts. But that in no way is me trying to let them off the hook. It's their people. They're fucking responsible for what their people are doing. And saying that they weren't there and not involved in the conversation is simply not good enough because at the end of the day, the reason managers and agents and all these things even exist is to be the asshole for the artist. And artists know that. They're like, I'm not the asshole. I hired that guy to be the asshole. So it's on him. Well, no, you sign their paychecks or they get a cut of everything that you make. So it's still kind of on you. Believe me too, the levels of schmarminess in this, I mean, it is a gross business all the way through. So even managers of massive, I'm talking like the biggest bands on earth, when they could get away with it, maybe a little bit harder now, we're making all sorts of crazy backroom deals. Oh, with we're going to get into all everyone. that shit. We're getting into that it, shit. Th- there's a good chance that like the manager of every major band in America at some point did something that if everyone found out would be like, holy shit, I can't believe this unethical motherfucker did that. Because it's their job. It, it, and yes. so I, the question is sometimes is whether or not they're acting in the best interest of the band. 
or the best interest interest of themselves. I think it's really important because Mark and I use shorthand amongst each other because we're friends. But I think it's really important to draw a distinction here. When when we're saying artist in this episode, we're not talking about like your friend's band. No, we're talking about like no. Metallica. We're talking about the one percent. Fleetwood Mac, <laughs> like Taylor Swift. Yes. Like that's what when we say artists are doing this, we're talking about like the ones who are millionaires, millionaires and billionaires, and. This is like top tier but, artists. And it's really important to draw that distinction, I think, because these major artists allowing this situation to develop is what fucks over mid-tier bands and lower level. Your friends' bands are suffering because of the situation mm-hmm. that is only worsened by the greed of people who do not need this money. They don't need it. They don't need more money. They have enough fucking money, especially now that they're going to sell their publishing catalogs to the hypnosis guy, which if you haven't seen the RIP music episode of this podcast, then definitely go listen to that afterward. If you want to feel real could, fucking depressed about the state of things this point, we could do a follow up on that when they bought even more shit since that. I mean, it's like insane. Oh, yeah. amount of shit. So, Here's another question that we need to be asking. Why did you not see not only any famous artists at this hearing, but any of their managers or agents? Because musicians will talk. Do you remember fucking, what was it, Al Gore's wife trying to uh, censor everything? Do you remember the list of musicians who headed up to Washington, D.C. to speak on behalf of that? And then the reason why Pearl Jam got involved, turns out they just didn't know what they were talking about, so no one was really worried about it. Yeah, set them up there. Who gives a fuck? So Taylor Swift, she can post shit on social media to play into her I'm perpetually the victim narrative, but cannot fly in her private goddamn jet to Washington, D.C. and show up when it actually matters? That is the definition of hashtag activism, all right? And with all of every senator in this thing trying to tell jokes written by one of those millennial staffers using Taylor Swift lyrics, anyone would think that this entire hearing only happened because of Taylor Swift. So why did we not at least see one of her managers or booking agents at this thing? You cannot tell me that they weren't asked. There's no fucking way. The only reason Pearl Jam got involved in that hearing in the 90s was because the Justice Department asked them to. There is 0% chance that Taylor Swift's team was not asked to send someone to this thing. And even if they weren't, I mean, I think I think it is incredibly likely that there were a lot of famous musical artists champing at the bit because they have publicly talked shit on Ticketmaster, ready to march up to D.C., have their moment in the spotlight, fight the good fight until someone on their team who knows what's actually happening behind closed doors said, uh, <clears throat> Listen, you might want to pump the brakes for a second because a lot of that money is going directly to you Mm -hmm. and jet fuel for private planes is pretty expensive. So (laughs) if I were you, I would just like go radio silent for a week and not do any interviews. Actually a month. Let's make it a month because reporters are probably going to ask and then you're going to have to talk about it. If uh, somebody from her team at least as someone of actual value and of influence was there, I probably would have flown to DC, tried my hardest to be in the room and then brought signs and held up signs of questions that they should ask her. Like (laughs) how much of the ticketing fee do you receive yourself? 
Or why didn't you do staggered on sales instead of doing it all at once and causing this problem? I would have had a million fucking questions. But typically, again, uh, I mean, Taylor Swift's people sit down and they 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 are bringing a fucking M1 Abrams tank to the fucking meetings. You know what I mean? Like these yeah. people are like top tier. But the thing is, no one... No one is ever going to tell you the absolute truth in those situations. Well, people don't even know the right questions to ask is the main problem. They don't know what to ask. And it's going to still, even under oath, be very difficult to get them to tell you the truth because the truth is going to probably be ugly and it's going to make Taylor look bad, even if she had nothing to do with it, which right. I don't know how Pro she wouldn't, but I maybe would assume, she didn't. I would assume had absolutely nothing to do with right. it. She probably <laughs> wasn't part of these negotiations. If I'm Taylor Swift, I don't give a fuck. Exactly. Let, pay my rent. Exactly. Buy me another house. Like you're showing up to the shows and your job is an artist to be an artist. Her management team really probably doesn't want to get asked very difficult questions. So even though turned into, well, this Taylor Swift debacle, you know, pushes this, this conversation that was already scheduled into the limelight even more. It would have been so easy for them to show up and be like, we are so disappointed in Ticketmaster because they screwed over the fans and, and Ticketmaster dude probably would have sat there and took it on the chin. It wasn't like he was going to push back and be like, well, here's all the things that you guys could have done different because, again, this is a hostage fucking situation yeah. at all times. You can't piss anybody off because they're the people that pay your bills. So it's like this constant. They're playing chicken at all times with each other. Like, are you going to say it? No. All right. Well, then I'm not going to say what you do. Right. We're not going to. We're protecting each other here. Right. If this thing ends up going as far as it could go, because all of these politicians on both sides of the fence have agreed to come together on this one issue and there's a very real chance that this thing plays all the way out for once ever in the history of the concert industry uh i think a lot of artists who have publicly talked shit on ticketmaster are going to end up very embarrassed um i think we should move into the history lesson portion of the episode and if anything we have said so far or in the future of this episode sounds too crazy to be true or you just don't want to believe it you could probably run a quick Google search and find one or several articles to back it up. One of the best articles that I think covers most of this shit, I would imagine most music fans are not going to want to believe, was titled Ticketmaster Rocking the Most Hated Brand in America. That is from Fast Company in 2011. Uh, make sure to scroll all the way to the bottom. There's a weird section that makes it look like the article is over. But after that section is when Ticketmaster's brand new CEO starts talking about a bunch of stuff. I guess he wasn't supposed to talk about because uh, he wasn't the CEO for very much longer after that. Uh, and if you're interested to learn specifically how things got this way, you will want to read a book called Ticket Masters by Dean Budnick and Josh Barron covering the whole history of Ticketmaster and Live Nation. I believe... Probably the most important thing to understand about Ticketmaster is how many of the problems that do exist in ticketing predate Ticketmaster, predate online ticket sales entirely, and in fact are hundreds of years old at this point. Sounds unbelievable? Keep listening. Ticketmaster was not even the first electronic ticketing service. They're just who won the war. The most successful early ticketing company was called TRS, stands for Ticket Reservation Systems. TRS was not really focused on the concert industry because this was the mid-1960s, and the concert industry barely even existed in comparison to the amount of tickets sold to sporting events, movie theater chains, and musicals on Broadway in New York City. Since it is still a giant and usually expensive pain in the ass to get good tickets to the most popular Broadway musicals, it shouldn't come as a surprise to learn it's been that way from the beginning. 
And one of the biggest problems has always been scalping. If you're looking for examples of scalping prior to the 20th century, be sure to include the word speculator in your search. They were often called diggers sometimes also. That's what they were called, but it was just scalping. Some third-party operation would find a way to get their hands on a bunch of tickets to a popular show so that after the show was sold out, they could charge whatever they wanted for those tickets on the street. Now, the idea, the original idea for TRS's business model was to charge a venue to rent the box office equipment, charge a venue a service fee for each ticket sold, then TRS and the venue would split a service fee that was charged to the customer for each ticket. So the first idea is we are providing a service to venues that should make it easier and faster for them to sell more tickets to more events. Therefore, the venue will want to pay us to provide that service. Now, it's possible some of those venues raised the base price of a ticket to offset the cost of using TRS. But as far as the actual service fees paid by customers, it was usually only 25 to 50 cents which is the same range customers would pay in service fees to other companies trying to do the same thing. And the total came nowhere near what a customer would be charged by a scalper. Uh, It's not really worth getting into details of any of TRS's competitors because they were all trying to solve the same problems and they all reached the same conclusions. Two main things they all figured out. One, you need a venue to commit to only using your ticketing system because you can't have two ticketing companies trying to sell the same tickets. You'd have... So many problems trying to track the same inventory, making sure you both didn't sell the same ticket twice, etc. Two, most venues didn't want to give any company 100% of their ticket inventory because then they couldn't keep running all the scams they had been running the entire time. Pretend you're a theater on Broadway. You're just trying to sell tickets when here comes some guys running a racket where they buy half your tickets and sell them for two, three, four times as much money as you were going to make. How long do you watch that happen before figuring out a way to get in on the action? At what point do you decide if someone's going to make four times as much money on half of your tickets, then that person should be you? To be clear, it was not only venues that did this. At basically any point in the pre-retail supply chain, you can and will find examples of people who legally or contractually had their hands tied as far as how much they were allowed to charge for tickets. So they took some kind of kickback for getting those tickets into the hands of scalpers who didn't follow the laws and don't give a fuck. These are tickets the general public never even had a chance to buy at face value. And again, I'm talking like a long fucking time ago. This scam was happening, and this should all sound very familiar to everyone who remembers a few years ago when a secret recording of a phone call came out proving that a Metallica rep was directly involved in holding back thousands of tickets per show to sell for higher prices on scalping websites, and Metallica and Live Nation would split that money. This exact same thing has been happening for over 100 years. It had been happening for over 100 years by the time TRS and other companies came along to try and solve the problem for Broadway, only to learn Broadway didn't want the problem solved because of how much extra money they were making off of it. But right around the time ticketing companies were learning that fact is when the whole hippie movement happened, which helped turn the concert industry into an exponentially larger thing with far more money involved. And then all of a sudden concerts reached a scale that for these ticketing companies became very worth paying attention to. Skip ahead to the late 1970s. 
there's a new company called Ticketmaster, and they are still trying to keep service fees in the same 25 cent to 50 cent per ticket range as the TRS days in the 1970s. Service fees had not changed until this guy named Fred Rosen became CEO in 1982. This is the guy who decided the service fee on a ticket should not be a flat fee applied to every ticket for an event. He thought the service fees should scale up with the base price of a ticket. Someone in the front row is paying more money for the ticket so they can pay more money for the service fee. That's what he started doing first with sporting events and then with concerts. The issue is... This new service fee racket would only work if Ticketmaster controlled 100% of the ticket inventory to an event. Otherwise, customers would just get their tickets wherever the fees were lower. So it's right back to the same old problem. The venue doesn't want to give you 100% of the inventory. How do you get that inventory? Fred's got an answer for that too. Instead of charging venues to rent the equipment that they use to print and sell tickets, Ticketmaster will give it to them for free. And if any of them are worried that customers won't buy tickets because of the high service fee, Fred offers to make the service fees even higher and cut them in on the action. So in the past, when we've said it's just Ticketmaster's job to be the bad guy, that's literally been their entire business model. Hey, don't worry about paying us the way all those other companies want to charge you for stuff. You sign an exclusive deal with us. We'll crank up these service fees and turn a profit for both of us. Mm. Let's just fuck all these people over, man. You'll get most of the money. And everyone will hate us, but not you. Sounds pretty good, right? Yeah, it's wild to me. It's always been wild to me that just how much they were willing to let Ticketmaster be the whipping post for every bad thing. Holy shit. Like Ticketmaster, uh, don't get me wrong, has its issues. And the, but it, it's really just a reflection of the entire business. Oh, yeah. Um, I know a person personally who was a professional ticket scalper in a major market. They call them brokers, right? Uh, yes, yeah. a professional broker is a professional, a nicer term to say. <laughs> but when a very large band, I can't remember exactly who it was, Bruce Springsteen type band, we'll say, was playing in his market, his boss, you know, because he was like the, the guy actually sold the tickets, he had a boss, was friends with manager of whatever the band was and just went directly to them and said, hey, I want a million dollars worth of tickets. I want a uh, hundred tickets in every market across the country, the manager says, yes, it's a handshake deal, you know, gives them a million dollars. They're guaranteed, you know, a hundred tickets in every market around the country. At that point, the, the broker has to sell those tickets for more than he paid, which was not difficult when the artist is big enough. What's wild to me is a hundred years later, these, this behavior is still extremely common because people are motivated by money and uh, venues want to make more money and artists want to make more money and managers want, everyone wants to make more money. <laughs> so the fact that scalpers exist, it is 2023 when we were recording this episode, you absolutely 100% can have a show where it is almost impossible, if not completely impossible to resell tickets. Yep, You can do a completely ID verified will call only show, meaning most venues have no re-entry. Once you go inside, you can't come back out. You have to go into the venue through security. You get to the other side of security, at which point you're in the venue and you tell them your name, you show them your ID, and it has to match the name that is purchased the ticket. You are not allowed to transfer tickets. You explicitly say that on the front end. This is a no transfer ticket. You have to show up or you're just out the money. You can't resell this ticket. So you show up, you say, hey, my name is Mark Mosley. 
it's me plus one or me. I bought two tickets. They say, okay, the, your name is on here. They look at your ID. Yes, you're Mark Mosley. Here's your two tickets. But now you're inside the venue. You cannot leave. So you can't even take your tickets and go back outside and hand them to somebody else that you sold them to. You are now in the venue with the person that you came with. It is nearly impossible to scalp a ticket in that situation. Yeah, you can do it, but you're going to the yes. concert with the people you sold exactly. them to. <laughs> yes, it is. Of course, you're still going to have like a tiny fraction of people that could do it. But the harder you make it, the less likely people are to yeah. do it. So you're adding friction to the process and it really cuts down on people's ability to do it. Now, as a venue, this is a nightmare and it takes forever to get people in the club. So there are genuine excuses why people don't do this, but it is possible. Nobody wants that to happen because they make so much fucking money not doing it that way. There's way more money in it. Basically, any arena or stadium level act that's not doing this, I would suggest that it is fair to assume that they like the way that things are. Yes, especially now that Ticketmaster in particular has a inclusive reselling system where they can cut people in on the fees so they get a fee when it's sold once. People take their ticket, which is verified through Ticketmaster because they bought it through Ticketmaster. They resell it on the Ticketmaster reselling platform and Ticketmaster gets another <laughs> fee. And, you know, they have deals worked out with, a, at least with the larger artists, maybe not everybody, to, you know, everyone, get, it's basically every time there's a transaction, there's a fee. And they take all these fees and they put them in a big pool and they, you know, they split it up according to however they split it up. They, so much money is generated. It's really easy for bands to take the high road and be like, we, you know, care about our fans, which I'm sure they do. But I guarantee you what they care more about their fans is getting paid at the end of the night and maximizing the amount of money that they can make. This is just the Nate. It's a business. That is something that I wanted to say at the beginning of this episode, but if I didn't, I'll say it now. It is the music business. It is a business. The goal of everyone involved in this structure all the way through the entire thing is to make money. I get it. These are things that you look up to. You, you think this person is pure, blah, blah, blah. It is a business. This is a business person. And a lot of them are bad at business. Sure. But at the end of the day, no one is getting up on that stage and doing it for free. They're doing it maybe because they love it and blah, 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 blah. They're also doing it because they get paid a lot of money. So like once all that happens where you've now got Ticketmaster who is generating a huge profit for venues on something that used to cost them money. It's not very hard for them to put the competition out of business and they're making enough money to acquire other ticketing companies when they want to while making enough money to add the signing bonuses and huge advances as incentives for venues to sign these exclusivity deals. But then here's the thing about concerts. They are more complicated than anything. If you ask anyone to look at like the, the deal sheet for just a major concert tour, lawyers buy houses because of how complicated the concert industry is. There are so many different parties involved in the deal and everyone wants to feel like they're the one fucking over everyone else. All Every side of this wants to feel like they're the one that's getting the most bang for their buck. Representatives for the artist, representatives for the venue, the promoter, they all want to feel like they're seeing the best return of anyone else, like a contest. 
Once you've got a company whose entire business model becomes, we really don't care that ticket buyers hate us. And if anyone in this deal isn't happy with their end, we will stick it to the customer even harder on fees and give the money to you. It is only a matter of time before higher service fees become the first solution anyone thinks of to solve any kind of problem. You're not happy? Oh, well, fuck all these people who are coming to this show. We'll just get you an extra dollar per ticket. And that adds up pretty quickly. This completely changes the way that deals get made because each individual party starts agreeing to terms that they would only agree to. These terms only make sense when they know they're getting paid on those service fees down the road. So then what you get every once in a while, some artist comes along who's got to try to make themselves look like the hero. David versus Goliath. This band hears fans complaining about those service fees. So the band starts trying to tell everyone else in the deal they can't add those fees without knowing there were contracts signed years earlier that hinge upon those fees. And the whole industry has become organized around those fees in a way that means these venues and promoters cannot just drop those fees or they will literally go out of business. That situation is garbage. Like Mark said, this sucks, man. And I would love to see it fixed, but it's not going to be fixed by a band who makes no effort to understand the situation and is only trying to look cool to their fans. And of course, I'm talking about Pearl Jam. Yo, do me a favor real quick if you're listening to this podcast. Which you are. You're obviously listening to this podcast. You think they're listening to the podcast right now? They're still listening. (laughs) Yeah, I guess they're listening. Yeah. We really need you to subscribe wherever you're listening. Hit the subscribe button. Definitely make sure you're subscribed. We've got merch now. What, shirts and pins and stickers and stuff? Yeah, on the website. Go to our website, yfbspod.com. Just do it. Just do it. That would be a good slogan for something. we should make a shirt. Okay. So everyone nowadays wants to act like Pearl Jam was on some kind of public mission to fight Ticketmaster all the way to D.C. But the Justice Department had already been looking at Ticketmaster for a while because they were aware of some issues Pearl Jam had with Ticketmaster, mostly behind the scenes stuff, mostly behind the scenes arguments over service fees. They asked Pearl Jam to come participate in that hearing. To be absolutely clear. If Pearl Jam wanted to make sure their fans didn't have to pay above a certain amount for a ticket, they could have easily done that by simply taking a smaller cut for themselves on every show. I would be willing to bet every Pearl Jam fan on the planet thinks every member of Pearl Jam is smarter than Kid Rock, right? Well, Kid Rock was able to figure out how to do a tour in 2013 that cost $20 a ticket. In 2013, beers were only $4. He went the extra mile of making sure beers weren't too expensive. If Kid Rock can do that by simply not asking for the maximum amount of money he knew he could have gotten, then maybe we should have a few questions for artists who want to entirely blame Ticketmaster for high ticket prices. I actually like the uh, stories of bands that negotiated because they were so big, like Dave Matthews Band, where they would get 110% of the door because oh, yeah. you know. they, were, they were so smart and knew how much money these places were making off of every ancillary thing. They're like, you're going to make 25 grand today off parking alone. You're going to give us all the door money yeah, yeah. and you're going to give us more yeah, on top. And pay us if you want to run your parking lot. <laughs> right. I can't remember the exact difference between the ticket price Ticketmaster said they could do and what Pearl Jam demanded of Ticketmaster. I want to say the difference was something like 25 cents. Pearl Jam was like, if this was 25 cents lower, we would say yes, but no. Can you imagine an entire tours ticketing deal blowing up over a quarter a ticket? Yeah, which even in today's money would be a dollar. It almost (laughs) makes you wonder if Pearl Jam was just being difficult so they could grandstand a huge fuck the man circus performance and make themselves look cool. 
Yeah. Hmm. Yeah. Uh, right after that hearing, by the way, the band Green Day, who were quickly becoming one of the biggest bands on the planet, thanks to releasing the following singles in this order, Longview, Welcome to Paradise, and Basket Case. That's what Green Day did in 1994. They then did a Ticketmaster tour where all the tickets cost $15. Trey Cool said that Green Day did that by doing what Pearl Jam wouldn't do, which is demand less money for themselves. He said, quote, we don't give a fuck about Ticketmaster. We're charging what we're worth, and we don't think we're worth $22.50. Jumping out of the quote right here, that is the uh, price of the Pearl Jam ticket. Back in the trace quote, we take a lower cut than Pearl Jam. You don't want your tickets being $27 and shit? Take a lower cut, guys. End quote. Again, I think it always goes back to when you're a pity little band. Again, you're sitting down at the negotiation table with a squirt gun. You ain't got no leverage. I get that. I understand that you're a small band like these bands are the biggest bands on planet earth at the time still to this day some of the biggest bands on planet earth but at the time they were the biggest you think that they didn't have leverage to go to Ticketmaster or anybody and say this is the structure that we want but the structure would have included pearl jam making less money yeah this is all smoke and mirrors the fees can be zero they really can if you want to go on tour and charge $0 fees, you can do that. The ticket's just expensive. The ticket will be yeah. <laughs> include the fees, and the artist will be on the hook for the fees. The thing is, is in that situation, the fees will probably be much lower because all the other bullshit ancillary things haven't been added on. Everything is negotiable. They're not negotiating. They're they're just grandstanding. Being dickheads. Because it makes them look punk rock. After that hearing, Pearl Jam went and spent two years figuring out how to tour without using Ticketmaster. And when they did do that, proving that it was possible to do that, proving that Ticketmaster did not have a monopoly, Pearl Jam successfully figured out how to tour without Ticketmaster. The final price of the average fan club ticket, this is like the deal that fan club members are getting, cost one nickel less than the proposed Ticketmaster deal under scrutiny in that hearing. So what do you think the general public paid? Yeah. Still like $7 more than the Green Day ticket, by the way. Well, and here's the thing, man. I promise you, even if it was $10 less, the venue would have made up the money somewhere. The money would have been made somewhere. Ticket or parking would have yeah, cost, parking cost 50 15 bucks, bucks yeah. instead of 10 or beers would have cost $6 instead of four at the time. Now they're what the fuck ever. I don't even want to get into that, but uh, everyone was still going to make the money that they were going to make. It was a stupid battle to pick. And it's insane to think that like of all people, you got dunked on by Green Day and then you got dunked <laughs> on what, like 15 years later by Kid Rock? Because that Kid Rock thing was a couple years ago. It wasn't that long ago. 2013. I mean, I guess that's a long time ago now, but it was still, when was that? When the, was the Pearl Jam what shit were the, in the what 90s? Were, what were the average ticket prices like when Kid Rock did that? Oh, he, they were already way out of control. Listen, and those shows sold out every fucking, every, fucking every single yeah, night because sure. he knew his audience and he did the blue collar thing and it worked fucking great because that's what people wanted so other thing that's super cute about this whole pearl jam thing is they were grandstanding over tickets that cost less than 30 dollars fees included 
Yeah. You know what a monopoly looks like? It's not $30 concert tickets. It's $300 concert tickets. Ticketmaster, in fact, did not have a monopoly on ticketing at the time of the Pearl Jam hearing. All right. So every one of you who has said that Pearl Jam already did this, Pearl Jam didn't do jack shit for a good reason, which is they did not take the time to even figure out what the situation was before deciding they knew what it was and that they should be the ones to fix it. It's it's the ego that it takes to just oh yeah i mean i could just come in here and fucking start breaking shit and fixing stuff it's like elon musk levels of confidence (laughs) yeah for no reason by the way what made a monopoly possible happened immediately after the whole pearl jam senate hearing and that was a telecommunications act of 1996 the same deregulation that allowed clear channel to own like all the radio stations at the same time allowed a company named SFX to acquire 71 radio stations, which it then sold for $2 billion, which it then used to pivot into buying up as many independent concert promoters as possible, which was the beginning of what eventually became known as Live Nation. It's funny, the sitting here in the studio talk, I'm thinking to myself, you know, maybe... Maybe the music business doesn't actually want Live Nation and Ticketmaster to get broken. Because if Ticketmaster became its own company again, where it was solely responsible for making money and and having a good public image like most companies want to have, yeah. the whole fucking thing would go sideways so quick. It would be really bad for a lot of people if Ticketmaster was like, well, we're an independent company again and we are no longer being the whipping post, so this is the truth. Live Nation would go out of business fucking immediately because that's what they were about to do when the merger was approved the power currently that live nation has at least on the concert side the thing is if you really can take a second if you read their they're a publicly traded company so every publicly traded company has to release quarterly financials and they're actually some of them are kind of hard to digest but they do do these like write-ups that kind of explain how they make their money where they make their money Really the most profitable part, at least in my unprofessional, I'm not a professional reading a 10K uh, thing, is Ticketmaster. If Ticketmaster were to go away, Live Nation probably couldn't function as a company. They really wouldn't be profitable because live music is not a super profitable business. Ticketing is a profitable business. So part of, I I guess, Live Nation's, maybe this is a really smart people at Live Nation. I don't know the internal workings see the writing on the wall and maybe they understand at some point there's a good chance that their whole way the company makes money may go away at some point because if the government does step in and say hey this has got to get split off live nation would have a struggle so maybe there's a really long-term play and the long-term play at least from what i can tell is to own quite literally all of your competition they own at least in the market that i'm most familiar with which is nashville which is where we live I would say 90% of the of the competition, the perceived competition, is actually controlled by Live Nation. They don't own them outright. I believe they own, you know, 51%, so they control the company, but they don't necessarily have to say, oh, we own AC Entertainment, which is a large promoter on the East Coast, but they can dictate what AC Entertainment does because they own a controlling share in the business. But hey, if it doesn't work out, they can also bail on it and bankrupt the company. And it really... They are actively absorbing as many small independent promoters as humanly possible because the perception publicly is that 
they can always say, oh, well, we just do 10% of the concerts in Nashville, which, yeah, I guess that's true in like uh, the sense that Live Nation proper, the company only does 10% of them. But in reality, they own 90% of the companies that are doing 100% of the shows. It's really just abusing. They're abusing the uh, the lack of either interest or understanding of how the business works. That's the consolidation in the music business is insane. When I quit doing shows, I was one of the last. There's only one other one that I knew of, a truly independent booking agency where it was like, this is how I made a living. There's always small people doing stuff here and there, but that's what I did for a living. My only job. You mean promoter? Yes, being a promoter. And now the, the situation has just changed so much. The perception of people that don't know any better, oh, this isn't a Live Nation show. It's a... NS2 show and, and these people that work at these companies are really nice and they're good people and they try their hardest to do the right thing or whatever. But at the end of the day, you know, there's, it, they're Nazis. <laughs> they're Nazis. They're the, their paychecks get written by the largest concert promoter in the world. What I think is really interesting in terms of discussing Live Nation's profitability, Live Nation works because it has Ticketmaster in there. Like that's part of this conversation. But Live Nation, their business model was based around becoming a thing that it never became. So the main guy in charge of it with the vision and the strategy, that, that strategy was to get control of all of these venues and then sell ad space to ridiculously wealthy sponsors. Like when you go to an arena and you see posters for like Pepsi or Coca-Cola or whatever, that's what this guy wanted to do. He was going to be the one who got the money for like 300 venues to put up the same sign. And then that would be a lot of money, right? Because of how many people are going to be coming into these venues to watch shows and games and whatever else. The issue is that as soon as he actually started trying to do that artist managers were like okay well you're gonna give us that too if you want my band to play in front of a fucking mcdonald's sign you're definitely gonna be giving us at least half of that money and if you look at the way that this door deal is structured i'm guessing it's gonna end up looking more like 90 percent of that money just fucking ends that whole strategy so he sells the company Live Nation was called SFX, as I said. They sold to uh, Clear Channel, I think. And then that was a monopoly, obviously. Like, Clear Channel owns all the radio stations and this promotion company that controls all these venues. Obviously, monopoly. So that gets spun out of Clear Channel and becomes Live Nation. That's when it got named that. At which point, Live Nation started bleeding money because their whole strategy was based around using this ridiculously huge bank that they had to overpay for everything. They would overpay for every tour thinking that they would get all this business and they would be the go-to person and then they could push the button on this ad campaign thing, start selling tours to sponsors and shit, which like that happens a lot now, but as demonstrated by the way that the Live Nation plan never panned out, it's usually directly to artists. Artists are usually the ones who go directly to a tour sponsor because they're the reason why people are there looking at the stage. So it makes sense that they would be the ones to coordinate that and profit from that more so than the venue or promoter. 
7% of their revenue currently, according to their 10K, is from sponsorships. The entire reason that Live Nation had to merge with Ticketmaster is they were something like $800 million in yeah, well, debt. Dude, I can't just, imagine what it was. Again, I, I, I need to, I, I know someone who knows how to read these. I need to actually have him sit down and spend an hour with me and go through it. But like, I don't know what the average company's debt to income ratio is, but certainly just looking at it from a layperson's point of view, I was like, this company is literally on the verge of going bankrupt at all times. COVID in particular, they're not going to survive. And the only reason they did survive is because they got a huge injection of capital yeah. from Saudi Arabia. Yeah. The merger between Live Nation and Ticketmaster never should have been allowed to happen, in my opinion. Everything has obviously gotten exponentially worse since it did. Another thing about that merger, just prior to the merger, Ticketmaster had acquired Irving Azov's artist management company. So Live Nation also got that. This artist management company was one of the largest in the world, repping bands like Eagles. So Ticketmaster was already on their way to becoming an entity capable of doing a bunch of totally new shady shit. Uh, then you throw in Live Nation and it just it all goes off the rails. And ticket prices are where you can see it. I think ticket prices are like 300% higher now. Sure. Which is like, doesn't track with inflation, doesn't track with the general sure. state of the economy. It only happens when you put all of these parties together under one umbrella. The only, the only thing, the only thing I would say to somewhat counter that is that it is now the only way that bands really make money. There's no money in uh, record sales or anything like that. So the pressure to make money on tour goes up. Someone actually asked me this on Twitter today. I can't remember the name of the, the title of the article. It was on that Deseret news source. Um, it's some article from like 1990, so it's 94 to 95, somewhere in there. Cause it was like five years before Napster. Cause someone brought this up to me. They were like, well, yeah, but didn't ticket prices get out of control because downloading and record sales aren't where they were no not really man um the all the legacy acts like eagles in the early 90s started charging a hundred something dollars for tickets barbara streisand did the first tour that she ever did in 28 years some of those tickets were 350 dollars in the 90s and in the 90s yeah and the crazy God, thing about this article damn. was that it was Ooh. very transparent that it was the artist setting the oh, prices sure, yeah sure. this whole narrative of like Ticketmaster needs to be the bad guy in order for the artist to remain looking cool had not been settled on yet but yeah the truth is that the artists are the ones who started upping the ticket price the base ticket price so then everything else goes up from there right um and yeah i mean obviously piracy hasn't fucking helped but this is where everything was headed and it was just a matter of the artist being able to figure out a way to get this money without looking like the bad guy the economy was also really bad when that merger happened mm -hmm. by the way in sure. 2010 uh, this is 2008 was the big subprime mortgage loan thing okay. right so then 2010 is when that merger happens this new entity, Live Nation Entertainment, it's not moving concert tickets. Sales are way down. So they start doing all these things to increase ticket sales, things that they can only do because of how much of the industry they now control. So if a show was in a Live Nation venue, then Ticketmaster could do things like give away a free hot dog with every ticket or even pay off everyone else in a deal in order to entirely scrap the service fees on a ticket without making the ticket price go up. 
you were saying earlier, you can get rid of the service fees. The ticket price is just going to be expensive. They were going around and just paying off everyone else to not have to add service fee on a ticket. Once your Ticketmaster and Live Nation and the artist management company, your artists are getting paid. Yeah. Up front, I guarantee your artists are getting paid. So then you're trying to make extra money on parking and concessions and hot dogs and beer and whatever else. You just need people to show up. So you don't really have to gouge them on the ticket. You don't have to mm -hmm. unless the artists just keep asking for more <laughs> and more money, man. And that's, that's where it all starts is the thing that I think people are really hesitant to acknowledge and don't want to admit is it really does start with how much that artist says they need to get paid. Again, I think it's in the best interest of every large artist in America that Ticketmaster never ever gets spun off of Live Nation because if Ticketmaster were to stay a publicly traded company, hypothetically, the CEO's job is to create the best possible company, not just profitability, but also typically your public image does matter. Even if you're fucking Exxon, you spend billions of dollars to make sure that people think that you're like an okay company that doesn't pollute the world to oblivion. Um, if at some point Ticketmaster decided to become we are sick of being the bad guys, which I do think that was part of the idea with all in ticketing was we don't want to be the bad guys anymore. So I think that was Nathan. This. I think that was Nathan Hubbard. Yes, I think that, that was, was, that was the guy that was a CEO yes. for a few years and he went on this whole redemption tour and he was trying to, right. He's the guy in the article that I mentioned near the beginning of this episode. He was trying to rehabilitate Ticketmaster's image because he apparently was trying to see how fast he could get murdered and have his body thrown in a river. <laughs> I mean, I'm pretty sure like in the, I'm not saying anything really that crazy here. I mean, artists, it, again, this is a business. So the push and the pull is that everyone wants to get paid the maximum amount of money they possibly can. With that comes higher ticketing prices and Ticketmaster is like, well, we need to make more money too because we need to make much money as we possibly can. So higher ticketing fees or the band goes, we want an extra $5 per ticket. And then the venue goes, we want an extra $5 per ticket. And Ticketmaster goes, literally said, I have had a ticketing company say to me, if you want to add $3 service fee to this, we are taking another dollar on top. Oh so yeah. This Every is, time. this is a piddly, I'm a piddly nothing. I'm an ant. Imagine what that conversation is like at the upper, the top levels of this. Like it's, these conversations aren't, okay, I'm, we're making an extra buck. It's we're making an extra 10 bucks per ticket. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, these ticketing fees are obscene. Well, you know what? The only truly hard cost is, is credit card processing. So let's just say you're paying 4%, which you're not. Yeah, if you're talking about an actual service, like the actual service being performed yeah. for the fee. <laughs> yeah, like realistically. It, I mean, it's not, and it's certainly not more for, unless it's a VIP package with a meet and greet. Yeah, sure. There are extra services being provided there and there probably should be an extra service fee. Yeah. But if you're talking about just like, give me a ticket that costs more than that person's ticket, but that's really all that the difference is, it shouldn't be higher. There's no reason for it to be higher unless a lot of people are trying to get paid for no fucking reason. A lot of things like the, the verbiage changes and this is again, probably, um, no, not probably. This is all negotiated. So sometimes you'll see on a ticket fee, there's a facility fee. It could be anything. Yes. That's just also their way of typically of pinning it on the venue. That's their fucking fee, not ours. As an example of what I mean, when I say that major artists are fucking 
everyone below them on the food chain. Right now in 2023, a lot of mid-level and lower-level bands and fans of those bands are pushing back against the practice of promoters and venues taking a percentage of artist merchandise sales. One of the main complaints from the artist is that the artist doesn't participate in money the promoter or venue earns from beer, concessions, parking, etc., which is true for nearly all of the mid-tier and lower-level artists who are complaining about this. But the way that taking a cut of merch got normalized was from managers of artists who were like at the level of Eagles, specifically Irving Azoff is the dude who usually takes the hit on this one and probably deserves to take the hit on this one. This dude repped the like biggest artist on the planet at any given time. And he knew how much money was going to be made on beer and concessions and parking and used that to argue for his artist getting a bigger and bigger percentage of the door until it got to the point that Mark referenced earlier where most of the biggest acts were getting 100% of the door at least, sometimes more, sometimes 110% of the door, leaving promoters and venues to only make money on beer and parking, at which point they then turn around and say, Okay, we gave you the entire door. We're not participating in merch. So now you have to give us a cut of merch. And yeah, you're right. Okay. Now that you saw that angle on it, you're right. I probably do. Uh If you're giving me 110% of the door, I probably have to give you a cut of merch. And boom, fucking here we are. Now all of a sudden, everyone's paying 20% of their merch to the venue just because that's what the big dog started doing. (laughs) Even though they were getting pieces of concessions and all the right, other right, things. Right. The, Nobody the, else is doing the, the, that The, <laughs> the mid-tier artists are not getting the cut of the shit that the major artists are getting and they don't have a leg to stand on when it comes to negotiating it. This bullshit just became standard because someone over here, someone who's making millions of dollars is getting a sweetheart deal that mid-tier bands and lower level bands can never get, but they still got to pay their cut yeah. because that's how it looks on the front of it. People don't see behind the scenes. And so now you got everyone standing around going, wait a minute. What, how the fuck did this become the thing that happens? (laughs) Yeah. That's how it's the, the fucking most famous bands in on the planet are the ones who did this. They're fucking you. Yeah. Yeah. Basically there's a merch rate because of, (laughs) because of people that you'll never meet or have any, you're, 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 say you're, you're, you're a blessed band selling a thousand tickets a night. You're still paying a 20% merge rate. And you're like, why can we get a piece of your parking? And they're like, fuck you, dude. Again, because now even at a thousand tickets, you're bringing a gun to the fight. But at the, the end of the day, they still have the fucking bazooka and the people that they answer to and they kowtow to have tanks. So, you know, get a bigger gun, I guess. <laughs> I don't know. Another thing happening right now goes back to the Broadway theaters and box offices, finding ways to get the best tickets into the hands of scalpers before they even go on sale to the public. At every point of the ticketing process, behind the scenes of concert on sales, you will find someone, a venue, a box office manager, a booking agent, a promoter, an artist manager, whoever it is, they have an opportunity to make hundreds of thousands of dollars by removing the best tickets from the inventory and selling them double face value, three times face value, whatever, to scalpers, aka ticket brokers, before the tickets go on sale to the public. That's what Metallica got caught doing. This is how and why you see tickets in the first 10 rows of any major concert hit the secondary market, which I fucking love that term. How did we just normalize secondary market to mean scalping? 
You see the tickets in the first 10 rows hit secondary markets at exactly the same time those tickets are supposed to be. Yeah, they never go on sale. Yeah, people complain to me all the time about that. Oh, never go on, like they will never hit the market. The other thing that people are doing, well, artists are doing now is they're doing, they're basically figuring out ways so that it doesn't look as bad. They have like VIP fans, you know what I mean? Like these yeah, are like yeah, their, yeah. their fans that play to be in their like fan clubs that pay reoccurring revenue for the band all the time and they well, give them they're all, access they're already fucking paying right. the cost that they're gonna get from the scalpers by getting scalped on the fan club exactly they're basically scalping their own fans by being like pay fifty dollars a month to be in a fan club and you'll get access thing is the tickets aren't free and no, oftentimes no, no, no. are still very You're just allowed to buy them yes you have early <laughs> you, actually, you actually have an opportunity to buy them on the on sale like you would think it would be and 100 percent of the time this gets blamed on bots that's what they told us about the taylor swift on sale it was bought as of the recording of this episode there are already dozens of articles that i saw that went out today about how bots are gonna ruin the on sale for beyonce's next tour which is weird because beyonce is one of the artists who came under scrutiny for scalping her own tickets so is it bots attacking the general on sale or is it that none of the good tickets were in the general on sale in the first place because everyone behind the scenes would rather charge you three times as much money while pretending everyone else is the bad guy. This is why to bring it full circle, no one from Taylor Swift's team wants to sit down in front of the Senate under oath of, you know, per perjury where if you lie, you could be charged with a crime. Um, and be asked what percentage of the tickets that were available, like sellable tickets, that's what we called it, sellable tickets. So if you're playing stadiums, the sellable would be 20,000 or something insane. What percentage of those tickets actually were on sale to the general public? That is not a question that Taylor Swift's team wants to be asked because the answer is probably not very comfortable for them to say. Because if the reality is it's only 50%, well then yes, of course, fucking Ticketmaster servers were melting under the pressure because a million people wanted access to what should be a million tickets, but in reality was 200,000 tickets. And I'm just making these numbers up. My point is, is that the, the request volume is huge. And even if there was hypothetically enough tickets to sell to the public, but only a percentage of them make it to the public. It's more, there's more money in selling them in the secondary market. I can't remember the exact percentage or when this happened, but it should be very easy for anyone who's interested to find it. Um, there was an instance of Justin Bieber, a Justin Bieber concert where they estimated that something like 10% of the tickets, there were only ever 10% of the tickets. It was 10, 15, something that low were available to the public in the on sale so you've got people just fucking crying little teenagers screaming at their parents for not being able to get them tickets and it's because those tickets weren't on sale at all ever the worst 10 to 15 percent of tickets were the ones that were on sale right and then the rest of them go direct to scalpers mm -hmm. you know and, and maybe some of them go to the fan club i well they can I, now they can I, go I, to th the th well that was part of the whole taylor swift thing was like fan club members thought that they had a code right. and thought that they were going to be the ones to get them and then whoop didn't get them so if we're gonna have government hearings about this shit can we uh get some transparency yeah can we maybe like open up the books on this one and uh we, we 
what, what's it called in Ticketmaster? The um the concert it's called a concert calendar where, yeah. where it tracks every ticket that got sold and who it got sold to and when. Mm-hmm. So if, if for instance, there was like a 500 ticket block that got held back to go to this broker or like a 3000 ticket block that got held off to go to some secondary market website, that would be in there. That would be in there. Yeah. The thing is, is nowadays because Ticketmaster has their own built-in secondary market it, it doesn't even have to go anywhere it can literally stay in their own system I mean, you could even you could even scrape the data i would think you could even scrape the data on how fast how many tickets showed up on the yeah. secondary market because i think it's reasonable to assume that if three thousand of the best tickets to a taylor swift concert are on secondary market websites within i don't know 30 seconds of the actual on sale happening. How did they get there? Yeah. That's fast, y'all. Also, like, have you ever tried to buy a ticket bot? Cause I mean, we're talking about teenagers. I mean, K-pop fans, for instance, they can crash pretty much any website on the internet that they decide to crash. Why don't they get the bot? Mm-hmm. Why don't they get the bot software? You're gonna tell me that these resourceful young people who were born with the internet as part of their brain basically can't figure out how to get the same bots that the scalpers are using? How fucking stupid do you think we are? Again, all it would take is the Ticketmaster representative at one of these hearings to be having a bad day where he oh just my like, God. you know, if he just snaps. Yes. He just like, fuck it. This is the, tr- you want to know, you want to know what happened? You want this the list? Happened. You want the list? Motherfucker. Here's <laughs> exactly. the list. Uh, on average, we sold 50% of available tickets. That's why our servers melted because there were no, for the volume of requests, there were no tickets available to fulfill those requests, period, because we never had those available to sell. I can give you a list. Some of the artists whose agents or managers have been reasonably accused or even proven to be holding back tickets from an on sale in order to kick them over to scalpers in the old days or secondary markets now. Uh, a lot of this list is not going to surprise you. Basically, anyone Irving Azoff ever managed, like the Eagles and so on. Uh, bon Jovi, Rod Stewart, Katy Perry, Van Halen, the Rolling Stones, Billy Joel, and Elton John tour, but also bands that you probably don't want to hear about doing this, like Radiohead in 2008. And because so many fans are catching on to this, and it's obviously deeply uncool to get caught scalping your own tickets, the industry is now trying to play a new game, which is called dynamic pricing. Dude, I love dynamic pricing. It's hilarious. It's like my favorite thing. It's my favorite thing only because most people don't really even grasp what it really means and they fucking hate it, but they don't realize what they hate. The issue is, is that there's no remove from the artist. It's so transparent and it's nakedly obvious that this is happening to you because the artist wants it to be happening to you. Yeah. There was this whole shit show where Bruce Springsteen did dynamic pricing for the first time ever. And I, so I guess for most of his career, Springsteen was one of those guys who was aware of how much fuckery was going on. And he told his team, look, don't go out there and make the best deal that you can make for me. Keep this shit reasonable. My whole thing is like music for the working guy. So keep this shit reasonable. Don't do what everyone else is doing. I don't even need to hear about it. Blah, 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 blah. Don't fucking tell me what it is. Just don't do what everyone else is doing. All right. I hear people talk. So that's what he did. But then this one tour, I think it was like the last one with the E Street Band or whatever. And that's why he was like, look, this is going to be a retirement tour 
because he had to explain himself because of how much of a shit show it turned into it. But his, his rationale was this is going to be the retirement tour for a lot of these guys. So we got to get him paid. So he told his team, all right, on this one, do what everyone else does. And they turned the dynamic pricing thing on and holy shit. Did his fans not like that? Yeah. I don't think anybody's would, but it does. And I mean, I got, I'm amazed that again, the only reason well, why Bruce this brings the in only particular. reason, the only reason why this isn't standard for most large events is because nobody wants to be the bad guy. They want Ticketmaster to be the bad guy. The thing about dynamic pricing is all it's saying is that as demand goes up, the price of the ticket goes up. This happens all the way down to clubs, by the way, it's just yeah, yeah. done manually. I know this because I've seen the emails where literally people yeah. have said, please I, raise the price $5. I worked at a venue. I've done it. Yes. This is a common thing. Only with at the highest levels, they can just have it be meaning, an algorithm. Meaning I've been told to do it and then done it. Uh, not that I decided to do it. Uh, at the largest levels, they just have an algorithm that says, yeah. oh, the demand is high. It, it just automatically raises the price. So they don't have to have human do it. What's crazy about it is you don't have to buy a ticket for $600, $1,000 to see Bruce Springsteen. But the algorithm is saying, well, there are a lot of other people that are going to pay a thousand dollars. Someone will. So John, do you want to buy the ticket for a thousand dollars or not? And you go, fuck. Yeah. I fuck you. I guess I'll pay a thousand dollars. Fuck Bruce Springsteen for charging me a thousand dollars. That's really not what happened. What happened was there was a whole bunch of other people willing to pay a thousand dollars and you actually were also. But the thing it turns is, out you were exactly yeah. now you're pissed about that, but you did it. Nobody forced you to. It's a fucking concert. You're not going to die if you don't go. But typically what would happen is those tickets would be on StubHub and you would say, fuck Ticketmaster and their fees or fuck StubHub and fuck these scalpers, fuck ticket brokers. They suck, but I'm going to pay a thousand dollars anyways. Well, in this situation, you just blame Bruce for, I guess you're or whoever for extensive pricing. But reality is. You didn't have to fucking spend the money. And if enough people, enough of the fans said, no, I'm not paying that the price actually comes back down. Yeah, stick to your fucking guns. <laughs> it's literally figuring out what are people willing to pay on the fly. The thing is, if Taylor Swift did that, A, people would dog on Taylor Swift, even though they should anyways. They wouldn't blame Ticketmaster. They'd blame her, which that's still happening. It's just being presented to you in a different way. Uh but tickets, there's a good chance that Taylor Swift could go on tour if they turned on dynamic pricing. There's a good chance that tickets might be a thousand oh, fucking dude, dollars grand. a piece. They, they, I'm talking nosebleeds, oh, 300 yeah. level tickets being 500 to a thousand dollars. Maybe front row tickets would be $15,000 guaranteed. And somebody, yeah. the rich people in your neighborhood, the, the girl whose dad is a dentist or a doctor or a lawyer, guess what? She's getting fucking four tickets and she's paying $15,000. The world is not fair. Okay. Like I get it. You're a Taylor Swift super fan or a whatever Bruce Springsteen super fan. The world is not fair. This is the reality of it. I guess the thing that still just bothers me the most about it is how much of it is based on the optics. And I don't think that there are as many people who would buy 
a $15,000 front row ticket to see Taylor Swift if that was the face value of the ticket. No, right. I think Agreed. a lot of it is, God, I love Taylor Swift and I wish all these mean old assholes weren't making me buy $15,000 tickets to go see her. Yeah. It's like, have you seen Taylor Swift's fucking house? Because she certainly isn't making that on royalties. This dynamic pricing thing is very transparent. You can tell, oh, th this band is fucking me, I think. And... And like Mark said, I do think that there's a lot to be said for the fact that you're kind of fucking yourselves by doing this. This is not life-saving medicine that you're bidding on. Like, this is your, what you do in your spare time. You're agreeing <laughs> to an ass-fucking, so I don't think you get to complain about the ass-fucking. Yes. But everyone is, they're scrambling. They're trying to find a new method of selling tickets that maintains the illusion the artist is the cool guy because so much of the concert industry is based on the illusion that the artist is the cool guy. Mm -hmm. I believe that we as a society in our own interest should do as much as we can to get rid of the illusion that the artist is always the cool guy. I know this may sound like a surprise coming from the host of your favorite band sucks podcast, but we should probably fucking ditch this whole charade because if the biggest acts on the planet have to come out and say exactly how much responsibility they ultimately bear for the high price of attending their concerts, I believe we will figure out real fucking fast what the true value of those tickets are. There's a difference in what people will pay when they think that they're being taken advantage of by someone who is not the person on stage that they're going to see. Sure. If we make it illegal, and again, I hope that some millennial staffer of a politician, at least one fucking senator in Washington, D.C., has made it this far into this episode, I think a real good place to start would be to make it illegal for artists and anyone else involved on the back end of a deal to withhold inventory from the public on sale in order to scalp it for three, four, five times as much money as the face value. If you want to profit that much on a ticket, then you have to put that price tag up front on the ticket. If you're gonna be greedy, at least be honest about it, all of this fuckery does not just hurt consumers, it makes it so much harder for artists who are not millionaires, artists who do not have private jets, artists who do not have the option of pulling all of this underhanded shit to make millions of more dollars, even if they wanted to do that. Like, even if, even if that dude in that band in the hearing wanted to do all of this shit to make all this extra money, he couldn't do it because he doesn't have the clout. They don't let him in the back room. He doesn't get a cigar. He's got he's to gotta sit there with his friend and think that they're cracking each other up in front of the fucking <laughs> Congress yeah. and achieving nothing. Man, I would just, I would love to see what would, I guess there are a lot of young people who think if I go on Ticketmaster at 10 a.m. exactly as it go on sale and I hit refresh and I get to buy tickets, I have a chance at getting front row tickets. I promise you, you never had a fucking chance. They never. always intended of selling those yes. tickets for way more than you were willing to pay. I wish artists would just be like, you know what? If you want to sit in the first five rows for our show that's fucking going to sell out for sure, it's going to be $10,000 fucking dollars per ticket. And there's probably a ton of a certain level. I mean, this is the top, top, top tier. But at this point, if Bruce Springsteen goes on a retirement tour and goes, the first five rows are going to be $10,000 a piece. He is going to sell out 
all of those tickets in every single market in the country. Very few of those tickets are ever going to make it to secondary markets because that's obscene. Some might. But, you know, no one ever really wants to be honest about that. So they'll pretend that those tickets did go on sale. What I would like to see also, I think your solution is great, make it illegal to do that. Uh, but I would love, why not ask a professional broker to come sit in front of Senate and, <laughs> and, and also make them swear on the uh, whatever they swear on the Bible or something like that to tell the truth. Imagine what oh, that stripper? would be like. like <laughs> swear on a stripper? Yeah, swear on whatever they swear on. You have to sit here and tell the truth and then ask the professional broker. So so tell me, Steve, um, you sold uh, X number of tickets to these Taylor Swift shows how did you exactly well, get... Well, first of all, you know, my name is Big Steve-O. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. How exactly did you get those tickets and uh, watch the fireworks? Which, you know, again, <laughs> don't get me wrong. If that were to happen, every manager in the country would be standing in the literally in the Senate room with a gun being like, I'll kill this motherfucker. That guy would be assassinated Dude, probably before he made it to the floor. By the way, I'm laughing because of how that's never going to happen. But if no. you are like an aide to a senator for real, try Try and just let the reaction inform your yeah. uh, actions from there. Uh, just subpoena StubHub's biggest sellers. Do it for real. Sub try it. Try subpoena, it. Be like, we want, or didn't even have to subpoena. Just ask them, can we have the name and phone number of your five biggest sellers on your entire platform? I would love to know who those people are and who they work for. Because surely they're just normal people, right? Like some guy in Wisconsin with a really fast <laughs> computer, right? Like that's just that guy. Yep. It's I'm not sure. someone who lives in a mansion. Yeah, exactly. Um, and or has a lot of interesting people's phone numbers in his phone. One more thing about how major artists are kind of fucking this up for everyone. If you listened to the Radiohead episode of this podcast, you may remember Mark and I calling that band a bunch of dickheads for releasing an album for free because it only helped to devalue music and make it harder for smaller bands to make money from something that bigger bands can give away for free because they can afford to give it away for free because they're making a fucking butt ton of money somewhere else. Well, guess when they did that? Mm. The album In Rainbows came out in the year 2007. In the year 2008, Radiohead got caught holding tickets back from on sales in order to put them on the secondary market before they were ever available to the general public. It's almost like there is some kind of cost that we're all paying when a band decides that they want to look cool and be the cool guys and be David versus Goliath. It's almost like it's a uh, false bullshit narrative that we would all be better off without. And that is why if your favorite band does any of this shit, <laughs> your favorite band sucks. You are welcome for another very special episode of your favorite band sucks. I want to see every single one of you motherfuckers who's ever complained about Ticketmaster in any way sharing the shit out of this episode. I don't care if you just found out your favorite band has been fucking you over for the past 10 years every time they came through your city on tour. This is not the moment to get all shy and embarrassed about falling for a scam. This is the moment to make sure your fellow Americans know what the scam actually is. 
Because right now, everyone complaining about Ticketmaster is doing what Ticketmaster wants you to do. Ticketmaster wants you to complain about them. It's their entire value. You are helping things stay exactly the way they are right now by blaming Ticketmaster. If you watch our episodes on YouTube, post a link to the YouTube video everywhere you can. Take the time to write out a description of why you're posting it. I don't care if it says, hey, I normally hate these assholes, but a friend of mine sent this to me and turns out they said a bunch of stuff about the concert industry I've never heard another person say. And it really opened my eyes as to what's going on. So if anyone plans on buying a ticket to any major concert this year, here's some information you may want. If you listen to the podcast, same thing, but probably the best way to share the audio version is by going to our website yfbspod.com grab a link to this episode's post and share that so anyone can listen wherever they listen to podcasts while you're on the website swing by our merch store and buy something just to say thank you to mark and i for never once charging you a hidden fee for anything it's a free show folks free show All right, I actually have way more notes than normal, so I'm just going to dive right into this. I do know that the tour Pearl Jam did without Ticketmaster ended prematurely. Nobody needs to say anything about that to me, because the reason why the tour ended prematurely is that Eddie Vedder got sick. You can just look this shit up. That's the reason the tour ended. Of course, when the tour ended because Eddie Vedder got sick, the official statement from the band or the reps or whoever was that they found out it was just too hard to tour without Ticketmaster. So yeah, I guess at this point we can also just go ahead and blame Ticketmaster for any time Eddie Vedder has ever had diarrhea. There has been a couple more major tour ticketing debacles since Mark and I recorded this, and I wouldn't be surprised if there's another one before the episode actually comes out, but I can say some stuff about Zach Bryan and The Cure. If you don't know who Zach Bryan is, he's one of the biggest things happening in mainstream country right now, which is kind of like being the best ping pong player in the world who really gives a shit. I don't. But uh, dude has been making a big deal about how much he hates Ticketmaster. So what does he do? Same stupid shit Pearl Jam did, which is book an entire national tour without Ticketmaster, proving a major artist can do a national tour without using Ticketmaster doesn't exactly help the situation at all, Zach, especially when the alternative ticketing platform you use was Axis, which is owned by AEG, who does all of the exact same things that Ticketmaster does. It's just that they aren't as good at it because they're only the second biggest one instead of the biggest. This is like saying, fuck Walmart, don't shop at Walmart, I go to Target instead. Dude, what? Okay, and I will say, one thing Zach did that was correct was use non-transferable ticketing. But then a bunch of his fans on social media, <coughs> professional ticket brokers using <coughs> stock public accounts to astro turf a uh, negative PR campaign. Mm. Yeah, I uh, complained so much about not being able to transfer tickets and how the entire on sale was handled, really. This happened to such a degree that Zach Bryan actually deleted his social media. Folks, this is what it looks like when fans can tell that the artist is actively involved in ticketing. If fans can tell that the artist is trying to be involved in any way in the way that tickets are sold, 
it's just going to go bad because no matter what, there are going to be a ton of people very upset about something at every single major concert that happens. This is why it's Ticketmaster's job. They stand in between the fans and the artist. This is the situation. Again, this is how we got here. This is why we're here. Next, The Cure. Mark and I talked to each other about the way this on sale happened for The Cure Tour and we both agreed that the on sale and ticketing for this most recent tour is the actual best effort any band has made in the year 2023 to ticket a tour and this is the way that tours should be ticketed. Despite that, there was this screenshot that went viral of the breakdown on one fan's purchase of, I think it was like four concert tickets. And uh, because Robert Smith obviously told his team to make sure the ticket prices stayed low, the fees on the ticket wound up costing more than the base price of the ticket itself. These tickets still cost less than $50 total, including the fees, which I would say is a fair price to see a band on the level of The Cure in 2023. But everyone's mad at Ticketmaster right now, so this tweet goes viral enough to get Robert Smith's attention. Apparently, I didn't know this, but apparently whenever The Cure does a new tour, Robert Smith gets on his social media and tries to openly communicate with fans and make sure as many fans as possible get what they want, etc. Again, probably always a mistake to do this, but he tweets, all right, everyone, I'll look into the fees. Now, keep in mind, this whole time, he's been tweeting about how the band chose to not use dynamic pricing in order to keep the cost of tickets low. And he specifically states, as part of this conversation on dynamic pricing, that the artists are the ones who choose to use dynamic pricing. And if the artists stop using it, then it will just go away. He says that, then says he's going to go look into these fees. Fewer than 24 hours after tweeting, he's going to look into those high service fees. He comes back and says he's arranged for anyone who bought a ticket to get some of those fees refunded. Can't remember what it was. It was like $5 or $10 or something, whatever. He is being celebrated for doing that, of course. And I think he should be celebrated for going to his team and asking the question that no other artist asked their team. What's going on here? What's up with those fees? Nevertheless, what I would love to know is how on earth he managed to get every venue on a national tour to agree to refund their fees in less than 24 hours. As is the case on all the deals that we talked about in this episode, I do not have any inside info, but the only way I can imagine Robert Smith arranging to have the fees partially refunded on an entire tour in fewer than 24 hours is if he asked where those fees went, found out a lot of them were going straight to the band and told his team to give the money back. That is something I can see being arranged in less than a day. But hey, what the fuck do I know? Anyway, yeah, apparently our government is still actively looking into this. So if you happen to live in a state represented by any of the senators on that Live Nation panel, you should probably go ahead and send this episode to them too. Tell everyone who works for these old farts that it's worth sitting through all the cuss words if they want to know what's actually happening in the concert industry today. Because the reality is, if they do break up Ticketmaster and Live Nation, but that's all they do, everyone is going to be so mad at them and they're going to be so confused because they will think that they have done the thing everyone's asking them to do and it won't change much. It really, really won't. If you want to see these things change, it's a lot deeper than just breaking up Live Nation and Ticketmaster. 
Okay, we will be back soon with another episode on how much Wilco sucks.